Welcome to episode 31 of the Axiom Podcast. I'm joined today again with Devin Dash. And Devin, my name is Joy Brandon, I should say. And Devin and I are going to be talking about debt today. What do we want to cover? Well, it was we had an interaction with a client in the last week or so where they were going to be purchasing a building. And there was a lot of helpful conversation, uh, a lot of discussion that came out of that conversation about how should I pursue financing, mm-hmm. you know, if purchasing a building. And beyond purchasing a building, uh, maybe you're just looking for a line of credit or, or you're looking to purchase inventory or whatever it is. It seems that small businesses are always what's the best type of debt right. to pursue. And there's there's even a philosophical question that that starts before that. There's kind of a bright line. There's there are a lot of business owners that think, I don't want debt, right? And so we hear that some too. Uh, and obviously, in some industries, that's not an option if you're in a heavy heavily, um, you know, if you're a high capital requirements industry like real estate, you know, it's not going to be feasible. But uh, we saw, you know, through the recession, uh, a lot of businesses did have a lot of debt, operating lines of credit, equipment lines of credit, lots of vehicle loans, uh, in some cases mortgages if they own the real estate. And when you're committed to those monthly payments and you, you have a you know recession like we had, uh, it gets to be very difficult because the bank doesn't care. <laughs> the bank doesn't care that your sales are down 50%, you know, or 60% or 70%, your loan uh, payments stay the same. So I think that was responsible for souring a lot of small business owners, particularly in our, in our area where we were hit so hard in Southwest Florida. Um, there's a lot of them today that just have sworn off debt. Uh, but, you know, we're in the, we're definitely in, I think we're in the longest recovery on record in terms of like between downturns. And so mm-hmm. everybody's kind of waiting for the next one. But the banks have, softened lending and where you're able to go out and get lines of credit now that were maybe, you know, five, 10 years ago, it was a lot more difficult. Uh, so debt is back on the table as a question. And the, you mentioned, uh, you know, there's lots of uses, whether it's real estate or whether it's equipment or whether we're talking about vehicles and fleet management. Yeah. Uh, so that gets to like one of the questions that we always want to know. It's, you know, I don't think you can make a blanket statement that all debt is bad or all debt is good. The first thing we want to know is like, what is the debt for? And so we've always right. said, uh, you know, if businesses ask, should I get a line of credit? Well, what is the line of credit going to be for? Because if the line of credit is to make payroll, absolutely, you should not go get a line of credit. You should right size your payroll so you can afford, uh, afford it without debt. Um, but if you're looking at expanding uh, you know, maybe a fleet, or you're going to buy a new piece of equipment, or you're going to you want to open a new location, and it's part of a growth strategy, and there's sound numbers behind it, and sound market demographics, and you've done your homework, then the debt really can, can fuel growth in terms of leveraging other people's leveraging your money with other people's money to allow you to do something today that you might not be able to do for years and years and years if you had to pay cash for it. So I'm going to give a question one. Is what's it for? And, and in this case, you know, the, what we've been talking about is using it to buy a, a facility. And this particular client, um, that was really a strategic question. And so, you know, why pursue debt? The question that we had to get to before that is, you know, why pursue buying the building? Because they're renting a building now. And as we looked at their growth prospects and we kind of laid out the strategic roadmap for the things that were going to have to be checked off for the business to continue to grow long term, we saw the physical facility really 
um, kind of bottlenecking their ability to grow. They were already out of space. They had an opportunity to maybe take over the space next door, but even that wasn't going to be kind of a long-term solution. And so we said, well, you know, buying, uh, leasing a bigger facility is, is kind of one option. Mm-hmm. Uh, buying a bigger facility is the second option. And, you know, that, that too is a question, like the lease versus buy, which all comes before the financing question. Yeah. So like there's, it's really a hard question to answer to say, you know, should I borrow the money? And the, the, the kind of point to all this is uh, the question you have to answer first is like, why are you even interested in borrowing money in the first place? Let's talk about that and whether that's a good decision. Then we can address whether we ought to go into debt to do that. Let's say uh, that, yes, we need to do this thing. Okay, well, then if we know we need to do this thing, <clears throat> then debt is one of the opportunities we might take up to pursue it. Right. So in, the, in this case, um, buying a facility, given the fact that the business was expanding into two new product lines uh, to complement kind of the, the bread and butter product line, we knew we were going to need lots more space. We we're going to need more space for vehicles. We we're going to need a yard to store them in. Um, we, there was so much opportunity for growth. It was going to be really difficult to put our finger on a square foot number that we might need and, and not have to grow out of in four or five years. And so when you're talking about the upheaval of moving a business from one location to another and not just the disruption to the business of you know, yanking computers and monitors and desks and chairs and mm-hmm. all that stuff out and moving it to another place and having to set it all back up again. But also, you know, when you do that, there's there's capital cost involved. You're pulling new cable. You're setting up new new systems. You might be subdividing offices. You might be putting racks in warehouses. You might be changing out overhead doors from eight footers to ten footers. And so all of that stuff, uh, if you if you have to do that every three years, it's horrendous. So yeah. like we're going okay. So how much space are we going to need if we're going from four thousand feet? Is ten thousand feet enough? Is 15,000 feet, like what is the number? And you and I were looking at each other going, who knows? Like how big is, we got two new divisions opening up. One of them could eclipse the the bread and butter business very quickly, just given the growth potential and the fact that it's a much higher dollar sale Mm -hmm. than what they were doing previously. So um, so yeah, there's a lot involved. I mean, what were you hearing in the conversation about, uh, once we once we had decided um, that yeah probably buying gives us the best opportunity to control our own destiny and we put some constraints around that like let's buy something that we can divide in two and w- we can take half of it now and potentially lease half of it and then on a short term lease kick the tenant out and grow into the other side but also something that um, parking was an issue here for the the field crews. It was an issue for the office. Um, equipment storage and material storage was an issue. So we said, not only does it have to be a big enough property that we can start with half, but we also need to have a yard uh, that we can secure and fence off. And so we said, okay, if we can meet all these requirements, expansion makes sense. And yes, we don't have the cash, so we're gonna we're gonna borrow it. Once we had made that decision, what were the things that you heard in the conversation that stood out? I think the thing that was most 
informational about that conversation, which I, I really think would be beneficial to our listeners, is okay. We decided that the purchase that we need to take on the the, the credit. What are my options, mm-hmm. and how do how do my different options affect my my flexibility as a business owner to make future decisions? Right. So uh, the conversation in this particular case was there's an SBA loan that mm-hmm. they could take out. So how, how mm-hmm. does the SBA loan impact our flexibility as business owners to make decisions? Yeah. Well, an SBA is something that, uh, again, has become uh, really popular again. It, it kind of uh, So many SBA loans went bad during the recession. You know, banks, uh, a lot of the community banks that specialized in them uh, were also hurting, so they kind of stepped away. But that business has come roaring back, and so we're hearing a lot more about set, uh, about SBA loans. And I'm far from the expert in SBA loans, but from a layman's perspective, and what we were covering with the client is that the way an SBA loan works is that the bank is still lending you the money. The only difference between what what would be termed a conventional loan and an SBA loan is that in a in a conventional loan, the bank makes you the loan. And they evaluate your collateral to make sure that if you don't pay, they're going to be able to repossess something, sell it, and get a good chunk of their money back, right? And so that's conventional lending. The SBA loan stands for Small Business Administration, and that's an an element of the federal government. And what they do is say, we're going to guarantee the lion's share of this principle that you're about to lend out so that... Let's say it's a, they're going to guarantee 97 or 95% or 90% of the, the principal payment that you're going to lend out. So if you fail to make your mortgage payments and then uh, the bank has to step in and foreclose on the property, and when the bank sells the property, they only get 70% of their money back, they can go to the federal government and they can apply to get the rest to be made whole on the remainder of it. Mm-hmm. So uh, the... That's the great thing about that is it allows banks to go. It's what it does is it encourages banks to go out and lend money, because there's less risk if they can get you qualified under an SBA loan. The bank itself bears less risk. There's really, from a risk standpoint, or from a from the customer standpoint, uh, it may affect the interest rate a little. But it's you know it's kind of there's a lot of businesses out there that I've worked with over the years that they didn't even know that the loans that they had were SBA loans. You know, we, we would get into some of the paperwork as they came in or some issue came up about the loan and be, oh, this is an SBA guaranteed loan. And there's a couple, there's a, there are a few other things that happen that that will come up. But on the very front end, we'll talk about this in a second, but on the very front end, what it means is that because this is a federally guaranteed program, it's bureaucracy out the rear end. I mean, there's just tons of, of requirements. So if you go a conventional route, and you're working with a small bank, and it's up to the small bank and their underwriting department and their loan committee and probably two or three members of their board of directors to decide, do we think that you're a good risk or not? That's what they're doing. So they're looking at your business. They're looking at your reputation. They're looking at how you, how they heard about you. Have they known you for a long time? How stable is your business? What industry is it? You know, it's, it's kind of common sense lending. And they could decide with a minimal amount of paperwork you know they they may they may ask for financial statements that they may not they may they're probably going to definitely ask for tax returns they're probably going to ask for your personal guarantee unless you got just you know gold bullion as collateral and you agree to <laughs> sign it over to them uh, but for the most part 
what they require to do the loan on a conventional basis is up to them. They just kind of have to do their due diligence and make a wise decision. The federal government doesn't trust that the local banks or even the the larger regional banks or national banks, they don't trust that they have the wisdom to make a good decision. So what they require is just gobs and gobs of paperwork. And so, and everything has to be in the proper prescribed form. And the underwriters are very picky because they know it's their butt on the line. If you do default Mm -hmm. and they have to make a claim to the SBA and the claim gets rejected because of some technicality, they didn't have a form filled out or they failed to get you to sign the right form, then the bank's out a tremendous amount of money and it all comes down to a paperwork error, not a decision error, not an underwriting decision error. It comes down to a paperwork error. And so that that may, means that when you're going the SBA route, just be prepared for a lot more headaches in terms of paperwork and compliance. And the banks are typically going to charge a little bit more to do that because it's more paperwork on their end. And then <clears throat> once the once the loan is out there, there's a couple of things that directly impact the borrower. So these SBA loans and conventional loans can have the same things, but a lot of the SBA loans, almost all of them, I think, um, you can't just pay it off whenever you want. So there are prepayment penalties. So you basically, you're going to wind up paying the interest maybe for the first 10 years, whether you like it or not. Even if you pay it off in five, there's going to be a prepayment penalty where you have to to make sure that the bank gets at least X amount of return on their investment for loaning you the money. And some business owners don't like that. So if you're looking at something that, you know, you're going, well, we're going to expand into this area and we're going to open a new facility and we're going to buy the real estate and that's, we're going to qualify for this type of SBA loan to do that. And this thing's got a payback period of like three or four years and then we're making gobs of money and we don't like debt. I would say time out, make, make sure if I hear a business owner hates debt, hates debt, hates debt, but it's a practical necessity to do it right now, but they've got a history of paying things off as quickly as possible, I go, you may want to reconsider the SBA because when we get three or four or five years down the road and you want to pay this thing off and you're looking at 15000 or $18,000 in prepayment penalties, you're going to be pissed. So understand the prepayment penalties. The other thing is that, again, because it's the federal government, um, they're going to want to lock up everything, meaning they want collateral, they want whatever collateral um, you can provide on, on what you're purchasing with their funds. So the building is going to have a mortgage on it, and, and they're going to be able to repossess that. But they're also going to want collateral on the inventory in the business. They're going to want the receivables. They're going to want to lock up everything they possibly can in the business. So if the, if the loan goes south, they can get it, their hands on as many of your assets as possible. But they're also, if you've got rental properties, they're going to want your rental properties. They may want a second mortgage on your home. They may want other personal collateral. If you've got an RV or, or, or boat or something, you may have to put that up for collateral too. And you can run into issues where uh, I've had clients before who maybe wanted to sell that rental property uh, because it has a fair amount of equity in it. And maybe they're looking at doing, maybe they, they had an SBA loan a few years before and they're looking at expanding into a new area. And they go, you know, I just borrowed some money, and I don't, I don't want another loan payment. I've got this piece of property over here that, you know, we're not. Maybe it's a vacation home, or maybe it's a rental property that's kind of breaking even, but it's got plenty of equity in it because uh, they don't owe a lot on it, and the market value's gone up. And like, I'll just sell this, and I'll take the cash, and I'll use that to fund the business. And we find out that 
the SBA loan, uh, that property has been used to guarantee the SBA loan. And when we sell that property, if we have significant cash proceeds come out of it, the bank under the SBA loan covenants may require that we take some of that cash we get out of the deal and use it to pay back the SBA loan. And so the cash isn't there, isn't even available to put back into the business. So there's lots of things. If you're, if you're thinking about doing SBA, make sure you ask all the what-if questions of the banker and make sure that uh, you're thinking not just, oh, you know, the next 120 days, you know, we want to close on this property. What's that process look like? But think about the next, you know, thousand days, the next three, four, five, six years, and what is it going to look like if I try to refinance it? What's it going to look like if I try to sell it? Um, a lot of deals get done in SBA loans originally, and then the business wants to buy, um, you know, borrow money again. We've got another client who's going through this right now where they, they're used an SBA loan to purchase the property. Mm-hmm. They want to purchase an adjacent property. And there's, I'm sure a creative banker can find a way to do that under the SBA, but what we're finding out is it's probably going to be better just to wrap it all up in one brand new conventional mortgage and refinance everything. And that has its own, you know, you, you kind of have to undo some of the SBA stuff to get it back into a conventional. So uh, it's not without its pitfalls, but it is a great option for a lot of people who might not be able to entice a bank to lend them money without that federal guarantee behind it. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think that's great feedback. And, and really, like I said, just informative stuff as you're thinking through financing for whatever purpose, whether it's the purchase of a building or purchase of inventory. Or You mentioned compliance. So I, I want to err on the side of caution and not, not say that you know the SBA is a big government bureaucracy. And, but they, they, they do help a lot of business. I mean, I think the Small Business Administration was created to to kind of spur stimulus in the small business market so that entrepreneurs could find help. But you did mention mention compliance. So what other kind of compliance, uh, what other things would the SBA require for compliance? As opposed to just paperwork, is there requirements to employ a certain number of people? Are there, are there additional requirements that come with that? Yeah, and that's a really good point. The SBA, the so. SBA loans, we hear about a lot, but you're exactly right in that the Small Business Administration is there to foster the growth of small business. So when you get a small business loan, one of the things that that the SBA wants to see before they'll make that guarantee is that you're going to have some kind of job creation or some kind of economic impact. Job creation is kind of the standard one. You know, we're going to, if we open this new facility, we're going to be able to hire 10 more people or we're going to be able to put 20 more trucks on the road. And they really, really like that. That's kind of a slam dunk. If it's not going to result in you hiring more people, let's say um, this is where a creative banker you know, can tell you SBA is a good option or not. Let's say we're going to buy a piece of equipment, and it's actually going to allow us to, to take what used to require four people, and now it only takes one person to run the piece of equipment. That could be a hard sell, you know, but there might be other elements of economic impact where you could say it's going to allow us to grow the business in these other areas, and maybe we can retask those people. That still allows you to 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 uh, make that economic impact argument and qualify under those other standards. Um, other than you know the other compliance issues, probably on an annual basis, not any different than a lot of your conventional stuff until you get into the much larger loans, and some of those don't even qualify for SBA because of lending limits. So, um, but the job creation front is a big one. 
And typically, if a banker hears that it's a new branch or something like that, real estate's very popular put into SBA, but there's other ways to, to borrow money against SBA guarantees. Um, the, the other thing I'll say uh, when it comes to, it's kind of related to compliance, but it makes a big difference what what kind of bank you work on this work with on this and and I'm biased um, I make no apologies for it um, I really like smaller community banks and you may have heard some of it come out earlier when we we're talking about that kind of common sense approach to lending and the reasons that I, that I like that is because uh, in this case that we were just talking about with the business who is looking at um, going from a lease to a purchase and mm-hmm. needed to take half the space and possibly grow into it. Uh, we reached out to a banker that I know, uh, a small community bank, and he put his underwriter's commercial lender in charge of it. Who And I, let's take a step back. So there's multiple functions within a bank. So you've got, you've got like the branch manager, and that's the person responsible for making sure people show up on time and man the teller windows and that people walking into the lobby are serviced and, and all that good stuff. And and in some sense is responsible for deposits coming into the bank and, and selling a certain number of loans and that kind of stuff. But that's more of a retail front. And then you have business bankers who are supposed to be going out there in the community and getting like business deposit accounts and and uh, business credit accounts, so bank credit cards and purchasing cards for businesses and some element of small business lending. And then you have commercial lenders. And these guys are the hardcore salesmen. Like that, they've got a quota. They got to go out and they got to write so much in loans every month, or in, and every year. And they're heavily performance compensated. And uh, and that's the people that you will end up talking to when you're talking about an SBA loan. Almost always, uh, you'll be talking to a commercial lender. It doesn't matter whether you're talking about a Bank of America or Regions, or you're talking about your local small community bank. There's going to be a commercial lender in there somewhere. And then once the commercial lender kind of gets the deal started, all the paperwork is going to go to somebody called an underwriter. And the underwriter is the person who's responsible for assessing the risk of your particular loan. And they're trying to determine, are you a good bet or not? So all your tax returns, all your financial statements, your customer list, your inventory, uh, all the stuff that they're asking, your debt schedules, all the stuff they're asking you to fill out, that's all going to an underwriter's desk, and he's pouring through it. And then he'll send his questions usually back up the chain of command and the commercial banker will say, well, we need this and we need that. And so that's the underwriting function. In a lot of small community banks, the commercial lender is the underwriter or fulfills a huge piece of the underwriting process. So there might be somebody who's kind of a specialist underwriter who will take a look at things after the commercial banker has kind of submitted everything just to make sure that nothing was missed and kind of review the package. But the reason that I like working with a lot of these small bankers is exactly what happened in this situation. So we called the, the person that I knew. He put his commercial banker on it, who I also happen to know. You know, we met 15, 20 years ago, and, you know, he was a familiar name, and I was a familiar name. So that always helps speed things along. He knows we're legit. He knows we're not, you know, just sending him something we heard about on the internet or whatever. Like this is a real client with a real problem and a real opportunity to do business. So he reaches out to the client and, and places a phone call. I think email first and follow up with a phone call. Got some information about the property they were looking at. 
went out on the market, found out about the property, called some real estate agents, called an appraiser that he knew, asked about the property, asked about comparables. And what he found out was that there was a reason the seller wanted a pretty high deposit amount in mm-hmm. order to put a contract down on this property because everybody he talked to said, listen, this property's never going to appraise anywhere near that asking price. And yeah, it's true. There's not a lot of stuff available in that neighborhood and it's scarce and, and this is a, a nice property. But if you just look at what things are selling for per square foot in the surrounding neighborhood, it's never going to appraise. And the bank has to rely on that appraisal. The bank's going to get, they're going to order a third-party appraisal and have somebody come in there and look at the property and say, it's worth $1.2 million, right? And if the sales price is $1.2 million, you might get the bank to sign off on it, provided you're putting down enough collateral. But what the bank oftentimes wants to hear is that it appraised at $1.2, and your contract that's been tentatively accepted, uh, you know, barring financing, is at $1 million or 980000 And they're like, man, this is great because, again, what happens if I don't make my payments and the bank has to take this property over and sell it? What are they worried about? Are we going to be able to sell it quickly at 980000 You know that we may, we may have lent out maybe 900000 and you put 80000 down and we relied on this guarantee from the SBA to kind of cover the nut if you didn't make good? And so the higher the appraisal relative to the the sales price, the easier it's going to be for the bank to do the deal. And in this case, the banker came back, the commercial lender came back and and told the client, look, this is not going to happen. Mm -hmm. And they were dealing at the same time, when we first talked to them, they were dealing with a national bank. And it was somebody that I think they had their business accounts with, uh, with a bigger bank. And so they just called the branch, talked to a lender, and they got them started filling out all this paperwork, right? And they're getting ready to submit tax returns and get all this stuff. And the bank's like, yeah, we can do this really quick. (laughs) (laughs) And come to find out, like, that bank was never going to approve that deal. But you've got, you know, in these bigger institutions, again, you've got somebody sitting behind a desk who may or may not know local commercial real estate agents they can call, may or may not even know the neighborhood that you're looking at, um, may or may not uh, have it as part of their job function to do some of the due diligence. May, they may just be uh, in an organization that's trying to run as efficient as possible, trying to push as many deals through, and they're just moving paper from one side of the desk to the other. And in those cases, our, our client in this case could have been barking up that tree for four or six weeks only to have the deal never happen. And they would have gotten their deposit back, but they would have lost not just the four to six weeks on the timeline, but all of the wasted effort and energy to pull all that stuff together and just have it go nowhere. So I really like the smaller banks because you get somebody who knows what they're talking about and is interested in helping your customer and interested in making you look good because they want additional referral business from you. You're going to be able to shortcut a lot of this stuff. The other thing is that it's often the part, or the if any of these um, you know, smaller community bank commercial lenders are listening to this, they're not going to like it. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I've had it happen so many times where you know we need all this information, right? And so we send it all in. Like we need, we just had this. We just had this happen with another one of our clients where they wanted a master debt schedule to do a loan application, and so we went into the Excel spreadsheet where we could find this stuff. And we just sent them. We just sent it to them, right? 
And then they took it and they evaluated it without requiring us to hand write out this form and fill in, you know, these 40 rows and columns of data of, you know, this loan, this asset, this serial number, this number of years, this is the balance, this is the number of payments left, like all that garbage that you run into when you get into a big bank and they're like, it just has to be on our form. I know that you have the information in this spreadsheet, but it has to be on our form. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times you don't have to deal with that in the community banks and the customer service level is so much higher and just it allows things to go a lot easier for the business owner. Mm -hmm. Hi, this is Joey Brannon. I want to take a quick time out just to tell you a little bit more about Axiom and the work that we do. We work with closely held businesses on strategic growth. What that means is that we come alongside the business owners, we help them get clear about where their business is going, and then we engage their leadership team to build plans for growth and then execute those plans. If you're a business owner and you're trying to grow or you're looking for future growth, or maybe you're just trying to manage the current growth that you have and you're looking for some help, you want somebody to come alongside you to give you the tools to show you what accountability looks like to build the skill set of your team so that you can step away from the business while it continues to grow, give us a call. You can find more information at axiomstrategic.com. What if we don't want to go through an SBA loan? What if we, the business owner is look, not looking for a conventional loan, what other options are there for financing uh, anything that, that you don't have capital for? Well, you know, the com- so if you don't want to go SBA and you don't want to go conventional, there's lots of time, lots of things SBA just won't qualify for, right? So, um, and if you don't want to go conventional, there's usually a reason you're not going conventional. It's usually because people won't lend money to you. Right, so your options start to get really, really narrow. If a bank's not going to lend you money, uh, and somebody else is willing to lend you money, you're going to wind up paying a lot more for it. So, um, you know, we don't want to we don't want to be in a position where we strike out with a bank and then we go to a lender of second or third or last resort. Uh, because then the economics of the deal kind of start to fall apart. And we may say, yeah, strategically, we need to do this thing, but not at any cost. Right? So I think what we would say is, again, going back to the first question of, well, what do we want the loan for? Um, and if we say, well, we want the loan, we want a loan uh, so that we can buy more vehicles. You'd be like, well... There are loans that exist specifically for that purpose. You, know, you, you talk to a fleet dealer at, at a car dealership, and they're going to have programs through Ally or, or somebody else uh, to manage fleet lending. Uh, lots of banks uh, will provide lines of credit for the same purpose and, and say, you know, we want to enable you to go out and buy cash for vehicles and then pay them off in kind of an accelerated fashion without the closing costs and and the hassle of having to fill out a loan application each time you want to purchase the vehicle. Like you see a good deal. We have lots of clients who do this. They've got fleets and they don't buy new, they buy used because they, they want the value, they want the, the value savings on a used vehicle. Uh, so they'll just put the word out with their two or three folks that they typically buy vehicles from, used car dealers. You know, we're, we're, we want to put Toyota Tacomas in service. You know, and we're looking for them three to four years old, 30,000, 40,000 miles or less. And when you get one, call us. And so they may get the call that afternoon. Mm-hmm. And the guy says, you know, 
here's what I bought it for, here's what I need to make on it, and they say, deal, we'll have a check there this afternoon. Well, if you have a line of credit, that's a, that's a great use of a line of credit. And maybe you pay fourteen, fifteen thousand $15,000 for the vehicle, and you know over the next three months you pay that sucker off, and now you own it in the clear. And if you're rotating your fleet, if you've got, if you've got a fairly small fleet, you know, 20, 30 vehicles, and you're rotating them through, you know, and you, you kind of can plan you know, what we need to be looking for and what we want to replace it with, that can be a good way to go about it. Um, but if they say, um, well, you know, we can't get a line of credit. Well, if you can't get a line of credit, it means that your business isn't profitable enough to service the debt, right? Or you've got some really cruddy stuff in your history. You've proven not to be a good bet on some other things in the past, and nobody's going to take a gamble on you this time around. So um, that's where, you know, those those past mistakes are really going to come into play when we're looking at how do we grow the business because we may not be able to leverage capital to grow the business and the returns have to the returns that we would need to get to grow you know and go out and buy vehicles to justify paying 12 13 14 15 percent interest rates on vehicle purchase like those are some pretty extraordinary returns mm. right and so the question always becomes, well, if you can get those returns now, why couldn't you get those returns back then when you were having a hard time paying your you know, less expensive debt off? So all of this stuff goes back to if you can't if you can't go the conventional route or you can't get a line of credit or you can't get a bank to finance your vehicle purchases, you probably shouldn't be looking at debt. Like if you have to if you have to get much more creative than that then you probably shouldn't be looking at debt. But there are options um, like one particular – so this is a good kind of non-conventional option for a business that wants to grow quickly but has to sell on credit terms. So let's say um, you want to – I'm trying to think of – let's say just like a standard supply house, right? And you're going you're gonna to sell goods maybe in this area, construction's booming. So let's say you want to open a, a new construction supply house and you're going to sell uh, – you're going to sell timber roofing material. So you're going to sell roofing materials and all the stuff that goes with it, right? So uh, there's lots of other issues to deal with, like competitive issues. But yeah. let's say that you've knocked all that out and you're like, we got to do this. But in order to do it, we have to offer our roofers 30 or 60-day credit terms, right? They're going to have to open an account with us. Their guys are going to come in and pick up materials that have been ordered, and we're going to let those materials go out the door without payment because we're going to send the head office an invoice, and then they're going to have to pay it within 30 days. Well, if you want to, if you want to establish, let's say, a $1.2 million business, right? Let's make the math easy. We're selling $100,000 of product every month, and that's $1.2 million at the end of a year. Well, if you if you're going to wait 30 days for that money to show up, there's $100,000 in capital you have to have right out of the gate. Well, we all know that invoicing with a 30-day payment deadline doesn't mean you get the money in 30 days. Hmm. usually means you might get the money in 45 days. So now we're up to $150,000. And so let's say that it, you've already got your business up and running. Let's say you've already got a supply house. And now somebody comes to you and says, uh, we want you to offer this new product, and it's got a $100,000 a month sale potential. And you go, that's great. We'd love to have it. 
But right out of the gate, you know, in order to sell $100,000 a month, you're going to have to have $150,000 on hand to buy the material and, and handle the overhead until you get the money back. So you can go to a company that factors receivables, and they basically will buy your $100,000 or $150,000 from you. So I'll give, say, I'm going to buy your next 45 days worth of receivables. Um, right now, you've to this point today, you've sold you know, $150,000 is going to come out over the next 45 days, and we're going to give you uh, $140,000 of that today. And $10,000 is our cut, right? And then as you get they work a couple different ways, they can go out and collect the money for you. They'll you know, set up a kind of an address that kind of looks like you. You know, It's kind of transparent to the customer that's going to a factoring, factoring company, and they'll collect the money. Or more traditionally, you'll just have to send them these payments over the next 45 days until they, they're made whole. And then you may continue to roll that, and they may continue to provide the 150 so long as you're making regular payments. Uh, so factoring is an option. Floor planning is another option. If you're opening up a, a place that has a showroom and you go, you know, it's going to take for me to start the showroom, if, if I want to start a jeweler, for instance, well, to I'm, I'm going to have a million dollars worth of inventory on the floor before I can attract the first customer to sell them something. I can't have customers come in and look at an empty, you know, display case. One ring. <laughs> right, right. Just use your imagination, right? right? Um, so you can do floor planning where the vendors will, or, or a bank, will finance your floor stock. And then as you sell that floor stock, you have to make payments to, to make the lender good or the, the uh, supplier good. So there's, there are a few different options, uh, and a lot of it's just it depends on the industry. You know, floor planning is a lot of the, probably the highest uh, incidence of floor planning is in the automotive industry. So these auto dealers, you know, they don't own the stuff that's sitting on the floor. The bank owns that or the, uh, the manufacturer's you know, credit division owns that. And as they sell the vehicles, they have to pay it back. That's the only way they can afford to have, you know, $20, $30 million worth of stock on the lot because they don't, they're not going to be able to go out and get the capital to finance 20 or $30 million in purchases and pay it off over 10 years. It's just not going to happen. Yeah. That's really helpful information. Anything else that you, you think that our listeners would, would find helpful about this conversation? Well, again, back to first principles. Um, I think a lot of the when people get into trouble with debt, it's because they're they're trying to take on debt to react to something that's happening, mm. right? So, um, you know, if we have, there's going to be a huge uh, desire for debt if we ever have a storm blow through Southwest Florida, right? Because it's gonna it's gonna damage fleets. It's gonna damage uh, it's gonna damage stock that's in the yard. It's going to put a crimp on receivables. You know, if, if a hurricane comes through here, you know, customers aren't gonna be paying their bills on time. Like they're trying to get their businesses up and running, or they're trying to get their houses put back together. So they're not worried about paying the invoice they got from you. You know, a week before the storm blew through. So those kinds of unexpected events writ large, like a storm that affects everybody, like there's a huge need. And a lot of the infusions from the federal government are to to put lending programs in place to cover stuff like that. We saw that happen here this last year with the red tide epidemic that came through Southwest Florida. And yeah. so on our barrier islands, we had either the state or the federal government, I don't know which, 
um, doing I think it was these, a state stimulus this, plan. Yeah, state plan to give businesses interest-free loans of fifty thousand uh, dollars just to help them cover payroll because they needed to keep. You got to keep your restaurant workers on some kind of schedule, even though there's nobody in the restaurant that week because you're a waterside place that's got you know red tide dead fish all over the place and nobody's coming to eat. So those kinds of unexpected events do create the the need uh, or the desire for businesses uh, to incur some kind of debt. That's the writ large piece. I think the thing that I would encourage business owners to think about are what are the kind of the writ small pieces? What are the everyday events, not the once in a decade disaster that hits everybody, but what are the things that could hit you in particular and how are you going to insulate against them? So if you're looking to grow a business, a line of credit can be a great way to leverage that and say, you know, I'm going to need lots of money for lots of different things. I can't go to the bank and ask every time. I'm just going to get them to give me a blanket line of credit for $100,000 or two hundred dollars or $300,000. And the bank's going to look at your size business and what you can afford to repay based on your profitability. And that's all they're going to lend you. Right? So you're going to go apply for a line of credit. And a lot of times you're going to get what you get. It is possible that you can shop around and get one bank to make a little bit better offer. But in general, they're going to use different rules of thumb and or some very similar rules of thumb among different banks. And you're going, to, you're going to kind of gain a consensus around what you can get for a line of credit. That's great if you're using it for business growth purposes and you're, it's not going evergreen, meaning that you're making regular payments and you're paying it off. So you're using it, you're paying it off. You're using it, you're paying it off. You don't use, if you get $150,000 line of credit, you don't use $150,000 and then try to pay it off over 10 years. That's not its purpose. It's $150,000 line of credit. You might use $80,000 of it and then pay that $80,000 back the next month or over the next two months. And then you might and then you might not use it for a while and you have some need. you got to buy some vehicles. you got to do something. Or some unexpected event happens and the line of credit's there. And that's why people say, you know, go out and borrow the money before you need it. Mm-hmm. And, and I think, the, I think that's, that's kind of foolish in some sense because if you go out and you borrow $150,000 today and you stick it in your bank account, now you have to start paying interest just for the privilege of holding that money in your account. I don't think that's a good choice. I think it's better to get a line of credit for $150,000, not pull on it until you need to, and you, don't have, you may have to pay some monthly account maintenance fees to keep it active. But otherwise, uh, it's it's money that's available that you're not having to, to pay for right now. Um, and that can insulate you against all kinds of things. It can help you through something like Red Tide. It can help you through a business owner getting sick. It can help you through, you know, an employee, a key employee who gets in a car accident and they're not available and you got to hire a lot of temp people to help cover for them. Um, it can help you expand into a new area. It can help, let's say, that you want to expand your sales team and you got to train two new salespeople and they're going to be on draw for six months. Well, you might use part of your line of credit to help cover their draw until they get up and running and have the commissions and the, and the sales coming in and you can repay the line of credit. So I do think a line of credit is useful for a lot of things. Um, but every business owner is going to be served by taking a look at the next three to five years and saying, uh, where do we anticipate having to need cash? Right? So the business that we started this illustration with, you know, we had just gotten introduced to and we had just kind of done kind of a four to six week deep dive into the business to understand what their needs were and, and how we would approach growing the business. And this issue kind of lands front and center 
you know, it's like a stop, drop, and buy a building kind of thing. And it's like, well, <laughs> that's a very reactionary posture to be into. Uh, so if we're building a three- to five-year strategic plan and we go, hey, this building's only going to last. Well, this happened with another client of ours. Uh, so we, we had been working with them for a while, and we were outgrowing our space. And so we called a, called a commercial real estate agent that I knew and said, hey, uh, here's the deal. Here's what's on our wish list. You know, we, we'd like 5,000, at least 5,000 square feet of office space. We'd like 10,000 square feet of warehouse space. We'd like a yard that we can put 20 to 30 trucks in. We've got to be able to lock it up at night. And, and so it needs to have, you know, fenced in, barbed wire, all that stuff, preferably close to the interstate, somewhere, you know, between this exit and this exit. And for the next year, he had his ear to the ground and he would bring a listing and we'd take a look at it and go, eh, we kind of like it, we kind of don't like it. And then he'd bring another one. And it took about a year and a half to find the property that they wound up buying. But we had a long enough lead time to not only tee up the, the uh, leasing agent or the real estate agent to make sure we got a good property, but we're also talking to all these banks going, hey, you know, you hold their deposit accounts and we're going to need to borrow a million dollars sometime in the next year or two. Are you guys going to be able to do it? And they came to the table with very competitive deals. We closed very quickly. Um, so if you if you can anticipate when you're going to have to borrow the money, again, your options just explode. But if you're sitting here today going, oh, my God, I can't believe this happened. i got to borrow money. You and I would probably sit down from the business owner, owner and say, what if we can't? What if we can't borrow the money? Yeah. Because the best option, if you're in a position right now where you have to borrow money, the best option, even though it may be very, very painful, might be not to borrow the money and just make some very difficult, tough choices. Like you got into this predicament, you're, you may not be able to borrow or bail your way out of it. Hi, this is Devin Dash at Axiom Strategic, and we just want to take a moment to, to break in our episode. And first of all, just thank you for listening. And the second thing we want to inform you of is a special series that we're going to be doing where we want to answer your burning questions. If you're a business owner or you're a professional working for a business and you have a burning question um, that we can put our minds to and, and maybe help you, you know, think strategically about, do not hesitate to, to reach out to us. We're going to be putting together a string of episodes where we're going to be answering your questions. You can email us your questions at podcast at axiomstrategic.com or you can visit our website axiomstrategic.com, visit our podcast page, and there will be a form that you can fill out and get us your questions that way. I want to thank you again for listening. And now back to the episode. Yeah, you know, that that leads to an interesting point and. and Really, I think something that could be helpful to not the not the business right now who's looking for uh, financing, whether it be conventional financing or SBA financing, or maybe not even looking for a line of credit, but the small business who is in a situation where maybe they're ready, they're they're hearing this and going, "Wow, you know what? What what can I be doing right now? I know that I want to grow my business. What can I be doing right now so that three to five years in the future, when I need to start making some of these decisions?" I am healthy. I'm in a healthy financial position to where I, I'm. I'm not in a pinch. I'm not able to. I, I can secure financing. Mm-hmm. What are What are some of the things that business owners can do to put themselves in a good position financially 
that, that doesn't require any outside funding or any outside mm-hmm. source? So a very self-serving answer for you and I is like build a strategic plan yeah. that includes, you know, what are, what are our revenue targets for the next three, four, five years? What are our gross profit targets for those same time periods? And what is our net income expectation during that same amount of time? So getting down to brass tacks of what kind of business do we expect to look like to a banker over the next three, four, five years so that when they look at our financial statements, it's a slam dunk, right? And then it really helps to understand some of these banking terms that that have to do with debt, like debt service coverage ratio and interest coverage ratio. So all that means is if my... If my payments uh, are $100,000 a year, the bank wants to see that I can cover those payments and then some out of my profits. So if I look at if my business is kicking off $200,000, $300,000 of net income a year and my debt service is $100,000, I've got a three-to-one debt service coverage ratio. And they go, that's great. Let's, that, let's use that. That's <laughs> Some businesses, I mean, we, we see and uh, you know, in some churches and nonprofits and uh, businesses that are considered to be, you know, f- fairly stable. You might get a bank to go in with a debt service coverage ratio of 1.1 or 1.2, meaning that virtually all of the profits are going to cover the debt. But again, in a nonprofit, you don't have a business owner who's trying to take dividends out of the business, so there might not be some of the same pressure. If it's a riskier industry, you might see much higher debt service coverage ratios. Uh, so as you put together that strategic plan and you start putting in the numbers that you expect to go along with it, um, just be mindful of, well, if I want to borrow a million dollars, so if you, if we just think in big round terms, if I'm borrowing a million bucks at 5% interest, if I've only got to make one payment a year, that's $50,000 just in interest payments that i got to make before I start chunking off any of the principal. And if the bank wanted me to pay that off in 10 years, then i got to take, say, $100,000 of principal a year. So now it's $150,000 of debt service for a million-dollar loan. So you have to, if your business is only doing $100,000 worth of net income right now, you got to recognize you might be living in, in a fantasy land thinking you're going to be able to go out and borrow a million bucks. Um, and, it, and again, it all has to do with the net income coming out of the business. It doesn't matter if you're a $20 million business trying to borrow a million bucks or you're a million dollar business trying to borrow a million bucks. The, if the million dollar business is putting 400000 to the bottom line, they're going to get that loan. If the $20 million business is putting $100,000 to the bottom line, they're not going to get the loan. So it doesn't matter how big your business is. It matters how profitable it is. And uh, if you don't have a plan to get there, you and I both know it's not just going to happen by accident. Mm -hmm. And this is all based on saying, like any goal, hey, we want to buy a million-dollar building, you know, four or five years from now. Well, let's just chunk that up into much smaller bites until we get to the point where we can actually do that. Step one is build the plan. Step two is make sure that you have the measurable financial results uh, built into the plan that if you achieve it, it's going to be a slam dunk for the bank once you get there. Yeah, you know, and that's where it really gets fun for us because we can look at 100 different strategies to increase net profit, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, whether it be setting up a salary cap and really, you know, holding holding overhead to a a strict minimum or cutting down on other unnecessary expenses. We the the strategies, I guess, to use the term loosely and how you can increase net margins is really comes down to the business owner's willingness to 
put himself in and discipline himself. Yeah, and that discipline can come in the form of sales growth and you know saying we're going to achieve these sales benchmark numbers to grow our way there. Uh, it can be we're going to become more efficient or better in our pricing so that our gross profit is better. Maybe we're going to sell the same amount of top line revenue, but we're actually going to to better our pricing so that we're having to provide less work to achieve that top line revenue or we're going to um, build a more efficient process so that we can turn jobs around faster and it's going to cost us less to get them out the door and have gross profit. Or they could look at their overhead and say, you know, man, we're just really overspending. You know, we're spending like a Fortune 500 company and we're a mom and pop business. We need to cut back, you know, some of these salaries or we need more affordable office space or we need... Um, you know, we need to close a branch that's, you know, warehouse or something that we're really not using. It's been a luxury in the past, but we could get by without it. Or, as is almost always the case, it's some combination of all of those things. Yeah. And you're right. There's a there are a hundred different ways to improve the net profitability of a business. Uh, you know, one of the things that that we know is that just saying uh, I'm going to stay where I'm at and find a way. Like, in other words, um, I'm not going to grow the business. We're going to make some cost cutting and we're going to get some efficiencies and that's how we're going to get to profitability. That probably isn't going to work. And it's just a, it's one of those things, like if you're not growing, you're usually going backwards. It's very, very difficult to tread water. And part of that is because the people who are going to be responsible for helping you grow, they're not satisfied treading water. If you're treading water, there aren't increasing opportunities for them. So one of the things that we see in a business that's not growing is flight of the top performers. They move on to other places where they do have opportunities to grow. It's not just your salespeople. It's your, it's the person who's working in your bookkeeping department who's fantastic at accounts receivable. You've never had anybody like them uh, able to collect receivables and make customers feel loved, and you know, the customers actually say thank you every time they send <laughs> you money, right? And this person's phenomenal, and they leave, and you go, why, why do they leave? Like, we just bought them a new desk, and we just got them this new computer, and we just, you know, we just gave them a raise, and they're looking at it, going, look, you're not growing, and I don't want to be an accounts receivable clerk. I want to be the the uh, head bookkeeper. But the head bookkeeper is not going into a controller position because you're never going to grow to where you need a controller. So until you grow so that person can move out of that position and I can move into the one ahead of me, I, I'm not sticking around for this. So, you know, when we, uh, we talk a lot about numbers and we talk a lot about, um, you know, finances and the, and the targets and that kind of stuff. But ultimately, if you're trying to grow a business... What you're really trying to do is leverage the time, effort, and energy of everybody else on that team because you can't do it by yourself. Like you may have been able to build a 500,000 or 600,000 or even a million business, million dollar business on your own. You just got out there and worked your ass off and made it happen. But if you want to build a $5 million business, you need a lot of other people working their tail off to do it. So if you're not growing and you're not providing opportunities for those people underneath you, they go somewhere else and then it's just back to you or you and your wife or you and you and that person who doesn't want to grow, right? We right. see a lot of teams like that where it's like, yeah, everybody's really happy. Well, that's because they're all C players. Like they're perfectly content with the status quo. You need all the A players left a long time ago because you weren't growing. 
So, you know, it's, it's, um, debt is just one picture and, and it's kind of impossible to unravel from all the other spaghetti strands involved in a small business. And that's why you and I like what we do every day, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's, that's one of the greatest things is, you know, you, you start to see that small business is really any business. It's, it's not dry. It's not, or it's not, you know, as straight cut as everybody would like it to be. It's often much more complicated and the much messier. Yeah. And the intertanglings of, of financing and it's, it's, I think that's why you have a lot of entrepreneurs too who see that challenge and they like to go and, and undertake it. Yep, exactly. Well, we have uh, enjoyed talking about debt, but we've been talking about it for like an hour, so it's probably time to wrap up. Yeah, hopefully they're still uh, awake. Just listen. <laughs> hopefully. All right, we'll see you guys next week on the Axiom Podcast. 